You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 12, we're going to be looking this morning in verses 37 to 43. Thank you, Josh, praise team, Laura, um, and musicians for leading us so faithfully this morning as Adam is away and we have a deep bench as we've always recognized and we're very grateful for that. The Lord has been good to Lakeview for many, many decades. And tonight I'm going to be preaching on the Ancient of Days. And so we get that language, we get that name, if you will, that metaphor for God from Daniel chapter 7. I believe that Daniel 7 being one of the most important chapters in our Bible. And so please pray for me as we prepare uh, to look at Daniel 7 tonight. We're going to take a break from Genesis because a lot of people are gone this morning uh, with trips and everything else. And, and we're in a very critical part of Genesis, and so I'm delaying uh, Genesis 16 until we get our, all of our people back. But until then, we're going to look at a passage I think you will find very encouraging and hope-filled, Daniel chapter 7. But this morning, we're in John chapter 12. Now, for context, uh, if you would look with me in verse 34, uh, this conversation, this exhortation that Jesus is giving uh, in this particular passage is taking place around Tuesday afternoon uh, before Good Friday. And uh, so he is about two and a half days out from the cross, three days out from the cross. And so this is the last word of exhortation that he will give to a largely unbelieving crowd. And then in our passage today, um, we see John's commentary on their response to Jesus' last exhortation and promise. But here are Jesus' last words in the Gospel of John to this unbelieving crowd before he turns his attention to his disciples, starting in John chapter 13. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. As we saw last week, there comes a time when the light is no longer there. So he is calling them to respond to the light while they have the light. In some very sobering language, we read when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's almost like an acted out illustration of what he had just warned them of. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it has been breathed out by the Holy Spirit. It comes to us as an inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word to us. Lord, I pray that your preacher this morning would steward this passage 
in a manner that was intended when John first wrote it for the benefit of your people and for the salvation of sinners and for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1999, when Heather was still with her uh, singing group, uh, she and I went to an event that her group was invited to in Los Angeles. And, And we found out when we got there, we were excited about this, that just down the street from where our hotel was, was the world-famous restaurant Spago. Well, we didn't want to go there for dinner because the dinner prices are a little crazy. So we decided, let's go there for lunch and at least get lunch prices. And so in the middle of the afternoon, 2.30 in the afternoon, we went uh, to Spago. And, and because there weren't very many people there, they put us in a choice seating right there in the, the terrace, the patio section, very scenic part of the restaurant. And so Heather and I are sitting there eating and enjoying our time together. And a man comes up to us with, a, with an apron on, appeared to be the waiter, but we'd already been waited on. And so I, we didn't know where he was coming from, but he began to engage us. He asked us what we were doing there, where we were from. And Heather told him and he got interested in that. He began to ask her questions about her group. Um, and uh, it was a good conversation, but about 10 minutes on to this conversation, I was ready for him to leave because uh, I was there on a date with my wife. Well, it continued to about 15 minutes, and uh, he's asking us questions, and I'm not asking him any <laughs> because I want him to go. But then he said, by the way, I need to leave, but what is your names? And I gave him my name, Heather gave her her name, and I said, I asked him the first question I'd asked him, and only question, what is your name? He said, my name is Wolfgang Puck. And then it occurred to me that made sense to the WP that was on his jacket. (laughs) We had been talking, or at least he had been talking, uh, and this man was the owner of this restaurant, one of the world-class, most famous chefs in the world. But because I didn't have eyes to see, I and Heather did not have eyes to see, we, we kind of dismissed him. We, we didn't recognize him for who he was. And therefore, we were not engaged with him as perhaps we should have been. Well, the failure to recognize Wolfgang Puck may not have been a sin on our part, though I had an opportunity to share the gospel with him and I didn't. That may have been a sin. But the failure to recognize Jesus for who he is after he has revealed himself to you is a sin. And our passage indicates not only is it a sin, it could end up being a tragic judgment on you as well. That's what the last passage indicated. We saw the end of verse 36 that he departed and then hid himself from them uh, after that great warning and invitation to walk while you have the light, to believe in the light. Now, verses 37 to 43, what we're going to look at this morning 
is going to explain why so few of them did believe in the light. How so few of them did believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. And we're going to see two groups in this passage, both of which are the fallout of not seeing Jesus for who he is, for not recognizing Jesus for who he is. The first group we see in the first part of this passage, there will be those, because they do not see Jesus for who he is, who will be hardened towards Jesus, hardened toward his gospel. Look with me in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them. So this is John commentating. Jesus has departed at this point. It's Tuesday afternoon when Jesus departed. And now the next time we pick up with Jesus, it's going to be Thursday, one day out from the cross. So here is commentary, John's inspired commentary on essentially the first section of the whole gospel, what many people call the, uh, the, the book of the signs. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still not, did not believe in him. Again, this drives home that, the, that evidence is never the real issue behind unbelief. Now, I'm not against uh, evidential apologetics per se. But at the end of the day, evidence is never the real issue. No one had more evidence than these people. They saw Jesus in the flesh. They had actually seen him and heard him perform these remarkable sign miracles. They had heard him preach. They had heard his voice. So, so evidence was not the issue for them because they had evidence in the flesh. Unbelief is always a heart and moral issue. It's always the case. Every human being has been hardwired for Jesus. And so if they resist the one they were hardwired from, trust me, it's a moral issue. They don't want to bow their will to Christ's will. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, nor can it be. Matter of fact, John says this unbelief had been prophesied some 700 years earlier. Notice in verse 38. They still did not believe in him, verse 37, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. John believed the prophets wrote inspired text. They, John believed that the Old Testament was inerrant and infallible inspired. And he says, these things happen so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1. Lord, whom has believed, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah here is sharing his experience of preaching and prophesying 
and very few responding. That was the plight of the prophet Isaiah. And John is saying that happened in Isaiah's day in time and space. But it was also a prophecy of the greater prophet who would come. In whom most would not respond to him either. Well, notice in verse 39, therefore, they could not believe. Now, that's a hard passage. If I was a topical preacher, I wouldn't touch this passage. Uh, Topical preachers don't go here. I'm just telling you. So this may be a passage you've never heard before. If you grew up in a church where there was topical preaching. One of the benefits of preaching through books of the Bible is that cowards have to face the text. They have to address every text. And I can be a coward. I can fear man. I, and so what I do is I, I hide behind the Bible, all right? So if you get mad, I'm, it's the Bible you're mad at, all right? All right, here's what it says. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So he quoted Isaiah 53 in verse 38, and here, in verses 39 and 40, John quotes Isaiah chapter 6. If you have a cross-reference Bible, you can see that. What's remarkable is that as well-known a prophet as Isaiah is to to, to Christians, because of great passages like Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 9, that great passage we sing at Christmas, uh, the mighty counselor. This is the most quoted section of Isaiah in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the apostle Paul in Romans and Luke in Acts all quote this passage. You think it's important? It's very important. If all of these gospel writers and and epistles are addressing this passage, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, what is the context? The context is that it's the year that Uzziah died. He was the great king who ruled over Israel for 52 years, but then he dies. Of course, Israel's hopes were bound up in the king. He was from the line of David. And so he is uh, the son of David, if you will, though 300 years removed. But he dies. And, and if the king is dead, there's no hope for the people. And Isaiah is transported into the, the throne room and, and he sees the Lord of hosts. And it says he, he sat on his throne. And that, and that gave Isaiah hope that even though their human king was dead, the Lord of hosts was not dead. He, was, he sat enthroned. And, and in that Isaiah 6 passage, we have Isaiah being converted through atonement. We have him being consecrated to God's purposes. And then we have him being commissioned. And here's Isaiah's response. Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. But what we read here in verses 39 and 40, which is a citation of 
Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10, this would be the effect of Isaiah's ministry. Again, God's going to blind their eyes. He's going to harden their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts. Now, why would the Lord share this with Isaiah? Well, the Lord was going to use Isaiah's ministry, yes, to bring salvation to many people. Beyond Isaiah's, even his dreams, even his thoughts or imagination, God was going to use his writings for the, the rest of history. But he's also going to use his ministry to expose unbelief. And I think this is analogous, this passage, to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. That's a very common, well-known passage for most of us in the book of Exodus. Do you know that three times in the book of Exodus, it says the Lord was going to harden Pharaoh's heart? And then six times it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And seven times it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And what's the point? If you trifle with the word of God, and in Pharaoh's case, that word came through the mediation of Moses, Israel's prophet. If you trifle with the word of God and refuse to take it seriously, God can justly and righteously harden you to what you are already dispositioned to resist anyway. So he confirms you, he hardens you in what is already your rebellious inclinations and disposition. I mean, that's Romans 1. In Romans 1, the apostle Paul speaks about those, although they knew God as God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And here's what it says in Romans 1. Their thinking, as a result, became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's scary language, sobering language. Consequently, God gave them over. Romans 1, 24. Romans 1, 28. When the Lord hardens a sinner's heart, it's an issue of executing judgment against long-established rebels. He doesn't take a morally neutral heart or a heart that is singing, how great thou art, and turn it away from him. He executes judgment on a heart that is already rebellious and resistant to him as a form of judgment. D.A. Carson says this hardening is a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. In other words, when sinners out of their own will, after consistent warnings 
after consistent promises and invitations continue to reject and resist Jesus and his gospel, then and only then do they open themselves up to the possibility of being hardened beyond repentance. It's hard language. But there's a place where you can get where you are beyond repentance. Hebrews even tells us that. And that's why Isaiah's call to us all is so important. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The inference being there, there may be a time where he, he can't be found and he won't be near. Horrifying language. A lot of people grow up in churches and, and they resist the word of God. They resist the gospel because they think, I'll, I'll just do this when I, I become an adult. After I have my, my play years, I had a friend tell me that in college one time. Uh, this is my time to party. I, I'll get right with God later. Well, that, that is... That's so naive. For one, it assumes that the party years, uh, that partying is a, is, a, is a more blessed, joyful life than Christ. But secondly, it, it assumes that you can remain the same by resisting the word of God and the gospel. No, as you resist it, you are hardened to it. But most importantly, it assumes that Repentance will always be available to this kind of person. And that's why when we are presented with the gospel, and this is for every person here this morning who's never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, now is the favorable time, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. And if you're here and your heart is still warm, to Jesus, your heart is still, you, you sense a brokenness and a sadness over your sin and over your disposition to sin. It's not too late. You haven't been hardened to that place yet. Respond to him in repentance and faith. Because the failure to do so is not only just to resist God, it is to reject Jesus. And what we're going to see is that Jesus ultimately will be the one who will judge you in the day of judgment. In fact, uh, John will say that the rejection of Isaiah's message 700 years before Christ was actually a rejection of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says that th that was a prophecy of him. Notice in verse 41, it's a remarkable verse here. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's, who's him? The context tells us it's Jesus. Isaiah is John is telling us that the glory that, that Isaiah beheld in the temple of the Lord of hosts who was sitting enthroned was the glory of the Son of God. It's a remarkable passage. And so here after quoting Isaiah two different times, John makes 
a remarkable statement. The glory in the temple was the glory of the Son of God. Now, why is that important? First of all, it teaches us something about the nature of who Jesus is. He didn't just come into being when he was conceived in, in Mary's womb. He is the eternal Son of God. The second thing this teaches us is that the Son of God is the author of the hardening that we read here. And so he has promised if the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. We saw that can't be every man because there are many who will, who will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. But from all nations, tribes, and tongues, there will be many who are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some, though, will be hardened. But that hardening will not be because God is unrighteous. It will be because he is giving you over to what you desired in the first place. That brings us to the second part of this passage. Uh, we have seen that we, those who are hardened towards Jesus, for those who do not see Jesus for who he is, but there's a second group here in this passage. For those who do not see Jesus for who he is, there will be those who don't publicly confess Jesus. Look with me in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. So, even after this warning that there will be those who are hardened, with their eyes blinded and their hearts hardened, he says, nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. Now, that's really encouraging, isn't it? Until you read the qualification. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So this is the second, the first being in John 9, the second of three times in the Gospel of John where belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is linked with the threat of being expelled from the synagogue. Expulsion from the synagogue was taboo uh, to the Jews because one's identity in that day was bound up with their family and their community. And that's where community life was centered, just like many today center their life around the local church. And so they believed, and yet they did not confess it out of this fear. For notice verse 43, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Now we can't help but compare this verse with other verses in the gospels. For instance, Matthew 10, listen to this. Verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father. So what gives? These people believed, but out of fear, because of a love for the glory of man, they would not publicly confess. These were undercover believers. 
And they were trying to do something that's ultimately impossible to do, to be secret disciples. It's impossible. And so uh, they wanted the best of both worlds. They wanted fire insurance. And so they had this, this belief in Jesus, but they didn't want to lose what the world had to offer them as well. Um, they, had, they had a scale of priorities. Think of it that way. On one side of the scale, human approval. The love of human praise. And on the other side of the scale, the glory of God. The fear of God, love for God, belief in Jesus. And John is saying that the glory of man weighed more for them than the glory of God. That's what he's saying. And the only effective treatment for this disease, the fear of man, is to learn Christ. These people did not see Jesus for who he is. It's one thing not to see a chef who owns a restaurant. It's much more catastrophic not to see Jesus for who he is. The only anecdote to the fear of man is that the Lord must be bigger than people to you. That, that's the only anecdote. We must come to know him for who he is. Infinite in his perfections, awesome and glorious. And we must come to know that people aren't. People aren't awesome and glorious. And this takes a lifetime to grasp, doesn't it? A lifetime of sanctification. Let's be honest for a second. I think most, if not all of us, see ourselves just a little bit in these secret believers. How many times have you remained silent because you were afraid what a person might think of you, might say to you, or what might happen to you? But the difference between a regenerate believer who does have eyes to see Jesus for who he is of course, we're always growing in our understanding of that, right? But the difference between a true believer and a spurious believer, that is one with a superficial faith. We've seen that time and time again in the Gospel of John. In fact, John chapter 8, it says that many believed in him. And as Jesus kept preaching, by the time he was done with his sermon, they had picked up stones to stone him. So there is a spurious kind of non-saving faith. The difference between a true believer... And a spurious believer is that the true believer through time and sanctification will increasingly grow out of the fear of man as evidence of life in him or her and into the fear of God. William Barclay, in one of my favorite quotes he's ever given in his writings, says this, secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms. For either the secrecy kills the discipleship or else the discipleship kills the secrecy. 
Now, he's not saying you can lose your salvation. But he is saying there is a kind of secrecy that exposes spurious faith, that reveals it. In other words, all of us have struggled with the fear of man. Perhaps if I had feared God more, I had, would have been more intent to share the gospel with Wolfgang Puck, even though I did not recognize him. But the difference between the one who knows Jesus and the spurious believer is that the latter stays in that condition and the former does not. And, and, and let me make that point from the gospel of John itself. Later on in John chapter 19, we read of two of these secret believers. John chapter 19, verse 38, listen to this. After these things, now what are these things? The cross. After these things, so Jesus has died on the cross. Many would have been there to see him, to hear him, to behold him. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. So right here, we're told. Joseph of Arimathea was one of those. He trusted in Jesus. He believed in Jesus, but it was a, he was a secret believer. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. This man's going public. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Again, John is inferring that this man is kind of undercover he came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So initially, these two men were secret, anonymous by their faith, about their faith. But by the time we get to the cross, Joseph and Nicodemus are going public. Um, they are risking their lives, their reputations, their well-being, and their identities and their careers for the sake of Jesus. And that will be the growing testimony of every true believer. We all struggle with fear of man at times, but evidence of life in us is revealed by this growing hatred of the fear of man. So for those of us who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we stand before God now as if we had perfect fear of God and no fear of man. That's our standing. You can't improve on that standing. Isn't that a glorious hope? We stand before God with that perfect standing. Because that was Jesus as our substitute. He never feared man. He always feared God. And his righteousness is imputed to us. That's our status. That's why we hold dearly to the doctrine of justification. But practically, there's still a whole lot of fear of man and desire for human approval left in all of us. But one of the evidences that we've been united to Christ 
One of the evidences that we have been justified is that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and believers will grow, because Jesus in John 17 prayed that, Father, sanctify them by your truth, and God always answers the, the Son's prayers. Our character will begin to look in more and more like our status. Our status, perfect righteousness, perfect fear of God, no fear of man. Our character, imperfect righteousness with a, a lot of fear of man. But as we grow, we become more like our status. But this sanctification is not a let go and let God. It is Philippians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Work out your salvation for it is God who works in you to do and to will according to his good pleasure. And so as you are struggling with the fear of man, you are called to what Paul says in Ephesians 2 verses of our chapter 4 verses 22 and 24 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life. That's your old self in Adam when you were an unbeliever and is corrupt through deceitful desires, you are to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is the process of sanctification daily. And you are to put on the new self. What is the new self? Jesus. You are to clothe yourself in Jesus who is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now, let me give you an image from... C.S. Lewis, to make this a little more practical for you. C.S. Lewis calls this good pretending. Now, he acknowledges there's a kind of pretending that's hypocritical. The, the Pharisees were, were bad pretenders. They pretended to be righteous when their hearts were far away from God. The imagery he uses here is akin to what children do when they play, um, when they play dress up and act like grown-ups. They pretend to be grown-ups. And so these children die, albeit imperfectly, to being a child and acting like a child and speaking like a child. They take off their children's clothing and they put on the, their adult clothing, the, the clothing of their parents, if you will. And they talk with one another and they interact with one another as if they are adults and they are mature. And C.S. Lewis says eventually pretense becomes the real thing. Of course, this analogy breaks down in that for believers, this isn't just moralism. We're not just, this isn't just behavior modification. As believers, we're actually united to Christ, who is our life giver. And his life is actually being communicated through us. But we also know we're not fully grown yet. That our character hasn't caught up with our status. Our status is mature, righteous, holy. And yet we're still spiritually immature in many ways. We still act like children. And so blessed with the resources that we have in Jesus by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we put on Christ and we begin to act like we're spiritually grown up. 
And guess what? We begin to take on the marks of spiritual maturity. And so, if your disposition in your former self is to be unfriendly to certain kinds of people, you die to it. Because that is the way of the child. And you put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you begin to act friendly towards others. And guess what happens? You begin to become friendlier. If your disposition is to be unloving to certain kinds of people, you die to that because that's the way of the child. And you play grown up. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ and you begin to act loving to the point of sacrifice to those who were unlovely. And guess what happens? You actually end up becoming more loving. As the demon screw tape observes in C.S. Lewis's book, the screw tape letters, all mortals tend to turn into the thing they're pretending to be. But this isn't mere behavior modification or, or moralism. The true believer knows that his works are done, as 1 Peter 4.11 says, in the strength that God supplies. God gives us the strength. God gives us the resources. But the good pretender also knows that even his best efforts are tainted. And yet, because he has the Holy Spirit, because she has the Holy Spirit, they haven't stopped trying to obey. They've trusted in Jesus for their justification. They're trusting in Jesus for their sanctification. But he still wants to act in a way that honors because there is a first faint gleam of heaven, C.S. Lewis says that's already inside of us. And so, in this particular case, the fear of man, ask yourself this. If I was sure that I feared God and did not fear man, what would I do in this situation? Ask yourself that in every situation. If I was sure I was a full grown up in Christ and I feared God and I did not fear man, what would I do in this particular situation? It may be an opportunity to evangelize. When you learn the answer, you play grown up and you do it. You do it. And wonder of wonders, here's what happens. We will often find that in his grace, God turns our pretense in that moment, mere duty into reality. And that's how we overcome the fear of man. And that's what I preach to myself often. Like we go out on the streets on Thursday nights. I'm a 55-year-old man going up to 20-year-olds. Most of them I could probably physically whip, and I am trembling in my shoes, <laughs> shaking. I went to seminary nine years, and I'm afraid a 19-year-old is going to run me out of town with a rolled-up newspaper. But then I engage in good pretending. That's not who I am in Jesus. He has promised his presence. And if I feared God more than I feared man, here's what I would do. And I go to that person shaking in my shoes and I share the gospel. And here's what happens. In that moment, I overcome my fear of man. And the fear of God takes root. This is a word to every believer. This is a warning. This is where we could end up if we, if we don't 
get serious about our sanctification. We don't want to be the anonymous Christian. But more importantly, this is a a word to those of you who have not trusted in Jesus. Some of you may be hardened to Jesus. That's one group in this text. If you're hardened to Jesus, you have no sense of shame for your sin. You're not mourning over your sin. The, the, The thought of God and Christ bore you. I'm asking you this morning, out of duty, cry out for mercy. Or maybe you're like these secret Christians. You've believed, but you've never publicly confessed. Why? Because you fear man. You love the glory of man and human approval more than you love God. And you can repent of that this morning. So as Josh and our musicians come forward, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. Don't pass this opportunity by. As I've said, when you are exposed to the word of God, you never stay the same. You're either going to be softened by it or you're going to be hardened by it. Resist that today and come to Christ as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.